0: It's
1: the 3rd of May in the year of our salvation, 2007. It's the Feast of the Apostles Philip and James, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast.
0: La vita è bella, me la devi codere, se non hai nulla, non hai pure i pensieri, al chiare di luna si può sempre sognare.
1: Today we're going to dig into an early Christian Latin work called De Prescriptione Hereticorum, the Prescription of Heretics, And uh, we'll talk about the Tridentine Mass and the situation of the modu proprio. And I have an interesting little observation in the end, and a public word of thanks to someone who was very kind to me
0: recently. (laughs)
1: We welcome to our podcast today Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus, otherwise known as Tertullian. He was from Carthage in North Africa. And he lived and died somewhere around 200 A.D. We just don't know much about his life or the, the precise details in his dates. What comes down to us is a little bit scanty, and it comes from personal notes in his work and some other things that other people mention, but we really haven't been able to figure out precisely uh, what his dates were. Tertullian was obviously a highly educated man, probably a lawyer, and he came more than likely from a, a family that was military. His father was probably an officer in the legions, and so In all of his works, there's a lot of military language and a lot of legal language. As a matter of fact, uh, many of his arguments are framed in legal or juridical terms. He uses those patterns a great deal. Now, when he was young, he was, uh, shall we say, uh, just as wild as everybody else in North Africa. But then one day, he saw Christians being executed for the enjoyment of spectators. And he was struck with the courage at with the at with which these you know very uh, uneducated people and slaves and so forth faced this horrible death that they were about to endure and moved by this he became a christian himself and then he turned his, ta- his formidable talents into writing in defense of the christians and defence of christianity as a matter of fact this was so early in the experience of the, the church of north africa that tertullian is very often uh, said to be and with, with real good reason the first christian writer in latin uh, this, perhaps maybe New, Minutius Felix was also uh, you know, perhaps maybe the first, but Tertullian is often called the first Christian to write in Latin, and so he's the father of Latin uh, Christian literature, as it were. And his writing style is incredibly pungent and biting. He was a brilliant writer, and his Latin is actually quite Difficult, You know, when you read Augustine or some of the others, well, their Latin kind of goes around, you know, right along, because they're using the sermo humilis, a humble style, a a style that's very readily readily, uh, acceptable by the listener. But Tertullian, who was always writing, all of whose works come out of a particular occasion to write, he's not a systematic writer, he's always reacting to something. He writes... Uh, convoluted uh, works that are very sarcastic and biting sometimes and his Latin is difficult and so you really have to work when you read Tertullian and because of the difficulty of his Latin and because of his style very terse, very ironic ironic, uh, copyists had a terrible time uh, copying him because sometimes the copyists' their Latin wasn't as good as Tertullian, and so they would, as they would copy, sometimes they you know take it upon themselves to correct what they thought were errors and so forth. And so the manuscript tradition for Tertullian is very, very difficult. Another reason why the manuscripts are difficult for Tertullian is because later in his life, as he became more and more rigorous and more and more ascetical he joined a, a sect called the montanists you see he strayed away from unity with the larger church because of what he was seeing he was he was uh, tertullian just couldn't accept compromise and uh, he saw terrible difficulties in the church of his day and so he went off, he split off into this group called Montanists and then eventually there there was a smaller group even called you know, Tertullianists and there were even Tertullianists in Augustine's day and he talks about them there was this little group of Tertullianists and eventually they had dwindled to such small numbers that they basically were reconciled with a larger church and they handed over their, their basilica and they became uh Catholics with the rest of them, but these Montanists were almost like Pentecostalists, and uh, they had maybe some difficulties about uh, some of them. At least had difficulties about the 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 Godhead, about the persons of the Trinity. Now, speaking of Trinity, as a matter of fact, Tertullian was the one who gave us many uh, terms which we use today in Latin. He was the first one to use the term trinitas, uh, for uh, the three persons in, in one god. And he also uh, probably was the one who introduced the word sacramentum, these neologisms, as they're called. They were new words. You see, in those days, they were still trying to figure out a technical vocabulary, how to express these these concepts. In Latin, they just didn't have the right words uh, for them. So they had to either adapt existing words and and give them new meanings, which would mean that if, you know, a couple hundred years earlier, if Cicero had read some of the Christian Latin, he'd be scratching his head, you know, thinking, "What what the heck are they talking about? Or there was terminology coming in from Greek, and so they had to find equivalents for the Greek terms. Well, sacramentum, is a word that was adapted from military language it was like the the oath that soldiers had to swear and this eventually came to mean a number of things in christian latin but it very often substituted for the greek word mysterion or mystery as a matter of fact in liturgical latin today the word mysterium or mystery and sacramentum uh, very often in our prayers is virtually interchangeable. But we have the word sacramentum in Christian Latin probably because of Tertullian. Now, today in the Office of Readings for the Feast of Saints Philip and James, in the second reading, we have a selection from Tertullian's work De Prescriptione Hereticorum. That word. Prescrizione, it's prescriptio, or in classical Latin it would be praescriptio, just in case you're wondering about the spelling, that's P-R-A-E and not P-R-E, okay, praescriptio. And it's a book about heresy, it's about how to think about heresy and how to argue with heretics. And uh, what kind of arguments to avoid when dealing with heretics? And so, how should we respond to them? Yeah, there was terrible problems in those days. So, at this point, uh, dealing with this dispute, you know, he approaches it like a lawyer, and he even comes up with uh, very legal or juridical uh, approaches to them. Now, just the very uh, name of the of the work, Prescriptio right? de Prescriptione Hereticorum. Now, a prescriptio in Roman law was a way to rule absolutely, just have a case automatically dismissed uh, from from court, from any legal proceeding. It was a way, for example, of, of getting an injunction against a heretic, as it were, from trespassing on holy scripture which he claimed was the sole property of Christians. Why? Because Christians had it longer. So this prescriptio was a procedure based on length of possession. It's almost like this old adage that we have is that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And because Christians possess scripture, that means that heretics have absolutely no right to use it. And therefore, we should never accept any argument from any heretic when he tries to use scripture, because they have no right to use it. Only Christians are able to use it. Now, in De Prescriptione Hereticorum, Tertullian tries also to help us identify who a heretic is, and how to identify one in the wild, as it were. And he argues that heresy has particular characteristics that we should be able to identify and as you live here i'll give it to you and listen if you think tell me if you think that these are applicable even today tertullian would say that heresy uh, like persecution tests man's faith and so for example if you if you are caused you know to doubt something and you're really tried by it well and maybe what you've encountered is a heresy and the person who said it was a heretic he also warns that that heresy was predicted by Christ and also condemned by Saint Paul who warned about uh, different kinds of philosophies and and vanities and so forth he also said that uh, heresy is characterized by too much curiosity. If someone is like digging too much with too many like ridiculous questions and just not ever happy with an answer, well, then maybe what you're doing is dealing with a heretic. A heretic then is always trying to put into doubt what are called the regula fidei. The regular fidei or like the, the is the rule of faith, those basic doctrines which every Christian really just accepts and believes because they are because they are true, and the entire Christian community believes them always and everywhere. So if you hear someone calling into doubt uh, the regula fide, or what we would call almost today dogmas of the faith, well, then you are probably dealing with a heretic. Now, in contrast to the heretics, Christians know that Christ received the truth and taught the truth, and transmitted it to to his apostles, and the apostles in turn handed handed it on to churches, which they themselves founded, and then those Other churches gave birth to other churches and they're all apostolic churches and therefore they can possess this truth. And anyone outside that chain that goes from the Father to Christ to the apostles to the churches to the churches founded by the churches, nobody outside that, shall we say, uh, system, that community, that chain can possess the truth. And how do we identify this and how do we know that this is right? Well, Tertullian argues that Jesus chose 12 disciples to be the teacher of mankind and after his resurrection he ordered the apostles to go and teach all men to be baptized and then they founded churches first in Judea and then the whole world and then from those churches they founded other churches you see and this is precisely the same Uh, chain of events that we will hear from in this reading, this little selection from the second reading of the Office of Readings today from De Prescriptioni Hereticorum. And uh, instead of going on and explaining more and more about this, let's just listen to Tertullian's words. tractatum Tertulliani presbitri, de prescriptione hereticorum. Christus Iesus Dominus Noster, quid esset, quid fuisset, quam patris voluntatem administraret, quid homini agendum determinaret, quam diu interis agebat, ipse pronunciabat sive populo palam, sive discentibus seorsum, Exquibus duodecim praecipos latri suo allegerat destinatus nationibus magistros. Iteque, uno eorum decusso reliquos undecim degrediens ad patrem post resurrectionem usit ire et docere nationes tinguenda sin Our Lord Jesus Christ himself declared what he was, what he had been, how he was carrying out his Father's will what obligations he demanded of men. This he did during his earthly life, either publicly to the crowds or privately to his disciples. Twelve of these he picked out to be his special companions, appointed to teach the nations. One of them fell from his place. The remaining eleven were commanded by Christ as he was leaving the earth to return to the Father after his resurrection to go and teach the nations, and to baptize them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The apostles cast lots, and added Matthias to their number, in place of Judas, as the twelfth apostle. The authority for this action is to be found in a prophetic psalm of David. After receiving the power of the Holy Spirit which had been promised to them, so that they could work miracles and proclaim the truth, They first bore witness to their faith in Jesus Christ and established churches throughout Judea. They then went out into the whole world and proclaimed to the nations the same doctrinal faith. They set up churches in every city. Other churches received from them a living transplant of faith and the seed of doctrine, and through this daily process of transplanting they became churches. They therefore qualify as apostolic churches by being the offspring of churches that are apostolic. Every family has to be traced back to its origins. That is why we can say that all these great churches constitute that one original church of the apostles, for it is from them that they all come. They are all primitive, all apostolic, because they are all one. They bear witness to this unity by the peace in which they all live, the brotherhood which is their name, the fellowship to which they are pledged. The principle on which these associations are based is common tradition by which they share the same sacramental bond. The only way in which we can prove what the apostles taught that is to say, what Christ revealed to them, is through those same churches. They were founded by the apostles themselves, who first preached to them by what is called the living voice, and later by means of letters. The Lord had said clearly in former times, I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot endure them now. But he went on to say, When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will lead you into the whole truth. Thus Christ shows us that the Apostles had full knowledge of the truth, for He had promised that they would receive the whole truth through the Spirit of Truth. His promise was certainly fulfilled, since the acts of the Apostles prove that the Holy Spirit came down on them ipse vos deducet in omnem veritatem, ostendit ilos nihil ignorase, cos omnem veritatem con secuturos per spiritum veritatis repromiserat, et udique implévit repromissum probantibus actis apostolorum descensum spiritus sancti. That was from Tertullian's work De Prescriptione Hereticorum. Using very legal and juridical arguments, he is telling us how to deal with heretics if we have to deal with them at all it kind of reminds me of that uh book in the american political sphere not too long ago how to deal with a liberal if you really have to well this is sort of uh, a tertullian's approach first of all you have to identify them well this is a heretic and then how to stop heretics dead in their tracks by not letting them use scripture because of this legal argument that they can't argue that they possess it, it's not their text, and Scripture isn't their text, therefore they can't use it. We can use it because it's our possession, we've had it longer, and that's the prescriptio, it gets them an an injunction, shall we say, it's like a no trespassing thing. And uh, Tertullian spins out his argument that Christ chose the disciples, his twelve apostles, he gave them a command to teach all nations they founded churches the churches founded other churches and all these churches are therefore apostolic and since and here's the like the philosophical dimension of it since every since the nature of every object is determined by its origin therefore Every church is apostolic, so long as they maintain their unity with all of the apostolic churches. And so anything that splits off from that can't be argued to be apostolic anymore. Well, it's with great irony that eventually Tertullian himself uh, broke with the Catholic Church. And although his writings are were fantastically useful, and all the early fathers of the church read him. Jerome and Augustine, all of them read Tertullian. Uh, it's very interesting that he really doesn't qualify to be like one of the you know, the doctors of the church, or he wasn't uh, able to be, you know, called saint Tertullian or anything, because he was he basically split off. He became schismatic himself. Now just before we leave De Prescriptioni Hereticorum, you might be interested to know that there are some kind of famous things in this book. As a matter of fact, uh, the works of Tertullian uh, have wonderful little phrases that have uh, come down through history as famous little phrases used by all sorts of people. One of them is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Or sometimes it's called "What has Athens to do with Jerusalem?" It's very often it, this phrase is often invoked as uh, showing a contrast between uh, the way worldly philosophy is and the teaching of the church, as if you know faith and reason don't have anything to do with each other. And uh, this phrase, however, "What has Athens to do with Jerusalem?" is very often misquoted. And uh, what Tertullian is really doing is he's pointing out that uh, the the Philosophical methodology—the way that questions are approached—don't necessarily have anything to do with the authority of Scripture or how to use Scripture in teaching. Now, be that what it, be that as it may, um, there's a little quote uh, that we should look at in chapter seven, and uh, well, let's just read it. Whence spring those fables and endless genealogies and unprofitable questions and words which spread like a cancer? From all these, when the Apostle would restrain us, he expressly names philosophy as that which he would have us be on our guard against. Writing to the Colossians, he says, see that no one beguile you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and contrary to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He had been at Athens, and had in his interviews with its philosophers become acquainted with that human wisdom which pretends to know the truth, whilst it only corrupts it and is itself divided in its own manifold heresies by the variety of its mutually repugnant sects. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart, Away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of stoic, platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief. Say what you want about Tertullian and his ideas. He is never, never boring. Well, in also, and this is just a little aside, last night uh, we had a wonderful uh, conference at St. John Lateran University. It was the end of a series of lectures put on by the Acton Institute on the encyclical of John Paul II called *Centesimus Annus, which is a very important encyclical in the body of the Church's social doctrine. And uh, after this wonderful conference, some of the guests were invited to a uh, supper at a restaurant on the Via di Porta Latina, which is very close to the ancient Basilica of St. John at the at the Latin Gate. And it was there, according to uh, legend, that St. John the Apostle uh, was... Uh, unscathed after having been put into boiling oil. And after that, then, he went off to his uh, island at at Patmos, uh, off of Asia, Asia Minor. Well, it's very interesting because Tertullian, in this work, De Prescriptioni Hereticorum, in chapter 36, he talks about that. And, you know, it's part of his... It's part of his argument about the apostolic churches, about this chain of churches and their connection with the apostles. And he he wants to give evidence of their apostolic descent. And so he talks about Peter. And Well, here's the little section. He says, Since, moreover, you are close upon Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes, even into our own hands, the very authority of the apostles themselves. HOW HAPPY IS ITS CHURCH, ON WHICH APOSTLES POURED FORTH ALL THEIR DOCTRINE ALONG WITH THEIR BLOOD, WHERE PETER ENDURES A PASSION LIKE HIS LORD'S, WHERE PAUL WINS HIS CROWN IN A DEATH LIKE JOHN THE BAPTISTS, WHERE THE APOSTLE JOHN WAS FIRST PLUNGED UNHURT INTO BOILING OIL, AND THENCE REMITTED TO HIS ISLAND EXILE. There, Tertullian talks about this uh, tradition that John was here in Rome, and uh, they tried to kill him, but he escaped unscathed, and that was at St. John's out on the Via di Porta Latina. And as a matter of fact, there's going to be a big Tridentine Mass uh, celebrated there this Sunday by the community uh, that is at San Gregorio ai Muretori, one of the churches here in Rome, where the Tridentine Mass is celebrated. Now speaking of the Tridentine Mass, or, well, we really shouldn't call it the Tridentine Mass, I guess. Uh, we, we can do that as kind of a shorthand, but you know, Tridentine is a bit of a misnomer because after the Council of Trent, when St. Pius issued the Roman Missal in 1570, well, they began to make changes to it right away. So we might really want to call it the so-called Tridentine Mass. Uh, we, can, we can call it that. Anyway, uh, I digress. Speaking of the Tridentine Mass... Um, lots of people have been talking about the de restriction of the preconciliar form of mass in a modu proprio that we hope Pope Benedict will be issuing very soon. As a matter of fact, there has been, you know, many many dates, and we've been waiting this, for this for a long time. And some people out there in the internet have even uh, created a, uh, a modu proprio random date generator. Well, uh, right now the big rumor is that it'll be in a couple of days on the 5th of May. Today's the 3rd. And so maybe, yeah, could it be, maybe in a couple of days that this uh, document will be released? Maybe it'll be signed? Well, you know, in thinking about this date, May 5th, May 5th, what is it about May 5th that's interesting? Well, first of all, in the older calendar, it's the Feast of St. Pius fifth. But there was something else that was pulling at my mind, pulling at my mind, what could it be? well years ago i worked in the pontifical commission ecclesia day and i was just thinking about this document and it came back to me now at the time when archbishop marcel lefebvre um, committed that uh, that act which separated the Society of Saint Pius X from the larger Church. A lot of people don't want to call it schismatic, but you know the Holy Father in his modu proprio, his own, the Holy Father Pope John Paul II in his own motu proprio called Ecclesia Dei Adflicta he seemed to think it was schismatic, but these days what we're talking about are schismatic acts that perhaps did not result in schism. Well these are all you know very interesting nuances, and I leave all that to people who, you know, are of a much higher pay grade than I am. But turning to the modu proprio of John Paul II, which was issued in nineteen eighty eight after uh, Marcel Lefebvre, uh, the late Archbishop, uh, consecrated bishops in a con in Switzerland. Looking at the document, we turn down to a very interesting section toward the end. It's the infamous number six in the document Ecclesia Day, And I'm going to read from this for just a moment, and you're going to hear something quite interesting. Let's see if you find what's interesting in it. Taking account of the importance and complexity of the problems referred to in this document, by virtue of my apostolic authority, I decree the following a, a commission is instituted whose task it will be to collaborate with the bishops with the departments of the roman curia and with the circles concerned for the purpose of facilitating full ecclesial communion of priests seminarians religious communities or individuals until now linked in various ways to the fraternity founded by monsignor Lefebvre, who may wish to remain united to the successor of peter in the catholic church while preserving their spiritual and liturgical traditions in light of the protocol signed on 5 May last by Cardinal Ratzinger and Monsignor Lefebvre. B. This commission is composed of a cardinal president and other members of the Roman Curia in a number that will be deemed opportune according to the circumstances. C. Moreover, respect must be everywhere be shown for the feelings of all those who are attached to the Latin liturgical tradition by a wide and generous application of the directives already issued some time ago by the Apostolic See for the use of the Roman Missal according to the typical edition of 1962. Isn't that interesting? The protocol that had been signed by Marcel Lefebvre and Cardinal Ratzinger when he was prefect of the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith was signed on May 5th of 1988. It's very interesting how these circles intermesh and all these things fit together as a piece. So, there's more than one reason why uh, the present Holy Father... Uh, once known as Cardinal Ratzinger, now Benedict XVI, now gloriously reigning, might want to either sign or issue a motu proprio on the 5th of May.
2: I I want for
0: me, yes, for me
2: un pochino te ne darò sì per te triste è la tua dieta quasi tutto esclude quanti sacrifici Mentre mangio come un elefante, tu hai vinto.
1: As I wrap up this podcast, I'd like to extend a word of thanks to a fellow blogger, Father Tim Finnegan, who has the wonderful blog, The Hermeneutic of Continuity. He has been down in Rome for the last few days. I've seen him a couple of times. Uh, today at noon, we got together with some other bloggers that are around the place. There was Zadok the Roman, who has the commonplace book of Zadok the Roman. And there was a Don Marco, who's a Cistercian. And he has the wonderful blog Vultus Christi, which I look at every day. And there were several other interested people who saw that uh, we were going to be getting together at the Pantheon. And anyone who wanted to show up in sort of a, a blog nick, as it were, not a picnic, but a blognik, uh, could come. And there were some uh, very nice people who showed up. It's wonderful to meet people. Uh, who you get to know online and you have these wonderful exchanges with and this uh, interesting, this fascinating synergy of a community that we've created in the blogosphere. But it's nice to be able to put a face to a name, and it was also uh, very kind of him to take a couple of us out to lunch and so I want to thank him personally for everything that he's doing. And with that, I'm going to sign off. God bless you. Come and see us at the blog WDTPRS.com, Whiskey, Delta, Tango, Papa Romeo, Sierra. That's what does the prayer really say. Also go see Vultus Christi and go see Hermeneutic of Continuity and and the Commonplace Book of Zadok the Roman and all sorts of other wonderful blogs out there. Bye-bye now.
2: Al ristorante mentre mangio come un elefante Tu hai vinto e niente Senza un poco